Hello everybody and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Toby Young. He's well known, of course, for having started the first free school in England. And he's equally, if not more famous, for having had his career ended, well, at least put on hold, uh, by an absolutely ferocious Twitter storm. Before we got on to talking about the Twitter storm, we talked about why he decided to start the free school in the first place. My feeling was it must be an absolute ton of work to do this, so... What was it that actually got him to do it? Well, my wife and I have four children, and they're all quite closely bunched together in age. Uh, So at one point, we worked out that Caroline had been pregnant over a five-year period for more than 50% of the time. And so they all started primary school in quite quick succession. And then they were all going to start secondary school in quite quick succession. So my wife and I started thinking about where they were going to go to secondary school. That became quite an urgent issue. Um, And we thought, we looked around, and the best schools around here, the best state secondary schools, are either Catholic schools or Anglican schools. And you have to be a pretty devout churchgoer in order to get a place at one of those schools. There are some good secular comprehensives as well, but they are incredibly oversubscribed and you effectively have to live within a few hundred yards of the school gate in order to secure a place at one of those schools, and we don't. So we thought, well, what are we going to do? We could either go private, but with four kids, that wasn't particularly uh, realistic, given that I'm a freelance journalist, my wife's a full-time mum, And she was very adamant that if we were going to send one to a private school, we would have to send all of them to a private school. Um, uh, We could move to within the catchment area of a good comprehensive, or we could get religion, which round here is known as on your knees to avoid the fees. (laughs) I love it. Um, (laughs) That's really good. uh, But let me just ask a question about that. It's... What is it that makes sort of the, the C of E schools, the Catholic schools, so much better than the normal comprehensive schools? Because they come in for a lot of stick, right? They say, oh, you should be more free about admitting people who aren't of your faith. And you can kind of see, well, that's fair. You know, if it's a good school, they should be, you know, they shouldn't uh, discriminate against people and let them in. But but on the other hand, you know, they are a faith school and, and they are the good schools. So what is it about the faith schools that makes them better? That's uh, a question which um, has uh, many different answers according to, generally according to what your general view is of faith schools. If you talk to the head teacher of a successful faith school, which um, doesn't admit all comers but gives preference to children of a particular faith, the answer is because the faith, the shared faith uh, of the staff and pupils at the school creates a sense of belonging, a sense of community, uh, a strong ethos within the school which binds everything together um, and that that is a hallmark of successful schools. Uh, If you talk to critics of faith schools, they will say the reason faith schools uh, that give preferential treatment to children of their particular faith, not all do, some are have completely huh. non-selective admissions policies. 
Um, the reason but, they're successful. But, but if you give, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that. If you're completely non-selective, how are you a religious school? Is it well, because, are, because the staff are religious and, 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 and that's where it comes from? Um, no. Um, uh, I mean, there are, I think there, 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 are, there are lots of faith schools um, which don't give preference to children of their particular faith in their admissions arrangements. They're faith schools in the sense that um, uh, they were established by a particular faith. Uh, they're usually what's called a voluntary aided school, which means that 90% of their costs are met by the Department for Education, usually via the, well, via the local authority, but 10% of their costs have to be met by the charity within which the school sits. Uh, I mean, it's... It, so there are, I don't think people, I think perhaps it's not widely understood, probably isn't widely understood by the general public or even people that debate faith schools that I think probably a majority of faith schools aren't selective according to faith. Uh, but there are, you know, there are, there are, there are thousands of faith schools. Um, but critics of faith schools say the reason selective faith schools are, uh, uh, get above average results is because they uh, admit a below average percentage of um, children from disadvantaged backgrounds and that children, even those children who are admitted from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to come from stable family backgrounds um, and have parents who are... Is there some sort of a causation correlation thing that if you are a strong believer in in God you will tend to be a more stable family because you're more likely to be, you know, married and... Yes, and and, um, usually the faith-based criteria in the admissions arrangements stipulate that um, you have to be a regular churchgoer, so have to go at least every two weeks. Right, so and you have so, to be the kind of person who's so sufficiently organised to do that. Yeah, and, so, so and, that automatically means you're discriminating in favour of families who are kind of conscientious and organised and uh, uh, enough to do that. Um, uh, and the Education Policy Institute published some research into faith schools last year which uh, purported to show that if you control for various characteristics like parental socioeconomic status, prior attainment, general cognitive ability and so forth, then children at faith schools, even selective faith schools, do no better than they would at neighbouring comprehensives. Uh, and so the effect of attending the faith school is, is, is zero, effectively. I didn't know this when I when I was thinking about where to send my own children to school and automatically okay. assumed that. I mean, I hadn't, hadn't looked in detail at the research around faith schools at that point, and I just took it as a given that if a school was getting good GCSE results, above average GCSE results, that meant it was an above average school, and if my child went there, they were likely to do better than if they went to a school which was getting below average GCSE results, which I think is a common sort of form of reasoning by parents, but I actually now realise it's pretty naive. I always thought that one of the one of the things that you could do if you sent your kid to a good school was not so much they would get a better education than they might get elsewhere, but that their peers, if they were more, you know, settled, organized, sort of easy to get along with people, not full of bullies, not full of, you know, people who didn't want to learn and therefore would disrupt everybody. You were just you weren't so much picking a good school, you were picking good classmates. And therefore if you've got good classmates, you'll tend to settle down and learn more than if you've got a bunch of disruptive, you know, hooligans in, in, in the class. Yes. Um, I think that is something that um, 
lots of parents are concerned about, though they often, or at least middle-class parents, are often inhibited about um, admitting that concern because it sounds like code for I don't want my middle-class child to be educated alongside working-class children lest they be contaminated in some way. Right. Um, uh, at least, I, I don't think that is actually what middle-class parents are thinking when choosing to send their children, their child to the kind of local middle-class primary school or comprehensive. But I think they're very concerned about being perceived as being snobbish. I think you, know, you often find this with people who send their children to private school too, uh, and it may be that parents who send their children to private schools are generally more snobbish and more kind of uh, concerned about you know the likely negative effects of their children being exposed to a kind of I don't know, but they, they, they in my experience they, they're, they're kind of they won't admit it either um, hmm. they talk about the facilities you know and various other yeah. things I think uh, anyway do you want I mean we could go down this rabbit hole and talk for hours about it but do you want to get back to your original question <laughs> I've, got, I've kind of forgotten my original question. So okay, so but but I think my very first question was 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 why you decided to set up your own school. And you sort of so as I've understood it, you said there weren't that many options open to me, and this sort of this sort of door was just opening up in front of me. But I kind of feel there must have been a bit more to it than that. Yeah, well, I was going to get I was getting to that. But, okay, but, so, but so you, well, you wanted to you sorry, wanted yeah, no, I, I, I talk I, about faith schools. I, um, I, I derailed us. I think. Yeah. Uh, so, so we thought those were our three options, and we decided that we would move to within the catchment area of a good comprehensive, which our children could get into. Um, and my wife found this school called Thomas Mills in uh, Framlingham in Suffolk, uh, which, which is a good comprehensive, and started looking at house prices in villages nearby and got quite far along with this went quite far down this road and eventually found a particular house and and it was all sort of in train and it just so happened that her parents live in a village near Framlingham and uh, but that wasn't the kind of (laughs) that was that wasn't really a factor for me Uh, but but um, but I suddenly thought you know rather than just passively going along with this, I thought it's just absurd that parents should have to move halfway across the country, essentially upend their lives uh, in order to secure a good state education for their children. You know, as taxpayers, shouldn't that be something that's available to us locally? And why should we have to embark on this ridiculous rat run in order to secure something which should be ours as taxpayers by right and rather than I, and I felt like I was kind of uh, just submitting to a state of affairs which felt um, absurd and that made me angry and this kind of spurt of anger prompted me to think well maybe there's another option which is we could try and set up a school in our local area which um which which we could get our children into, and which other parents nearby who can't get their children into the local faith schools or to the one good comprehensive could also send their children to. Uh, there need to be more high-quality, non-selective, non-faith comprehensives in this area uh, than there are at present. Um, and uh, at that time, 
um, Michael Gove, who was the shadow education secretary, had embraced the free schools policy and had announced that if the Conservatives win the next general election, they're going to make it easier for parents and charities to set up schools. So it looked, And it looked at that stage as though the Conservatives would win the next general election. So it didn't seem completely unrealistic. This was in 2009. And uh, so I wrote a piece for The Observer in August 2009 saying that I wanted to start a school, one of the first free schools, assuming the Conservatives won the next election. Though it looked as though it might be possible even under the, the then Labour government, yeah, who were in favour of parent-promoted academy stuff, and, and yeah, they'd, they'd, they'd introduced the academy's policy, and there was at least one other parent-promoted academy in Lambeth, which had been set up by a group of parents. So it looked not easy, but certainly possible even under Labour. Uh, so I wrote this piece saying I wanted to create what I call a comprehensive grammar, a school with a comprehensive admissions policy, but grammar school standards, if that was possible to achieve. And I, I think I, Hogwarts so, meets... Um, okay. uh, and so I then, at uh, the bottom of this piece in The Observer, I said, if you're interested in helping me do this, um, this is my email address. And uh, about 150 people emailed me. I invited all of them to a meeting at, at this house. And about 50 people crowded into my sitting room and I sort of got up and made a speech and talked in more detail about what I wanted to do and people asked questions. The vast majority of them were people I'd never met before. And out of that group, about 12 people emerged who seemed really interested and committed to doing this. And that became the steering group. I didn't know any of them bar one um, mm. before beforehand. And uh, we then embarked on this kind of project together. And, uh, and it immediately kind of took over my life and you know was working 60 70 hours a week unpaid on this project and leading this group of 12 or so people and it was certainly much harder than i'd imagined sure under a labor government but when the when there was a change of government even though the tories didn't win a majority nonetheless michael go became the secretary of state for education the free schools policy remained part of the coalition agreement and we became the first group to sign a funding agreement with Michael Gove, so the first free school to be green lit, and then we were one of the first 24 to open in 2011. Right, and one of the questions I wanted to ask about that, because you are the first, and I thought, was that a benefit or a disbenefit? Because presumably, being the pathfinder, you kind of, must take you longer, mm. it must be harder work, and presumably you must make mistakes you wouldn't have made if you would have had, you know, six months more to sort of just yeah. think about it or see the mistakes yes. other people are making and swerve and swerve around them. So what was it? Was it important to you to be first for some reason? And, and if so, what was that reason? Um, well, it was partly wanting to get the school open in time uh, for my own oldest child ah. to go. Right. So... And how, how how old was your oldest child then? She's now fifteen. Uh, it was in so when it opened in twenty eleven. That was what seven years ago. So she would have been uh, seven or eight. But one thing I was conscious of is that I'd asked this. I asked this guy called Jonathan Fingerhut, who had successfully led a group of parents uh, who'd set up a school in Barnet in North London called the Jewish Community Secondary School, which is a voluntary-aided faith school, but nonetheless a parent-promoted school. And um, in 2010, it opened in this fantastic new building, and it's now a very successful school. 
And when my group was at a particularly low ebb, when we had you know another knockback from Ed Balls, then the Secretary yeah. of State, um, uh, I got him to come and talk to us. And I thought, you know, they'll see that it can be done. It's not just a pipe dream. And um, he said it was actually a terrible idea because he was incredibly gloomy about the <laughs> prospects of our succeeding. And he said... But, um, but I'm sorry, I'm just confused here. You're saying Ed Balls, but, but when did free schools become government policy? Was it only under the Tories or only on, or, or, or did it happen under Labour as well? Um, it was possible to set up what were then called parent-promoted schools right. under Labour. Policy. So you were starting off with a parent-promoted school, which then morphed into a free school once yes. go to Yes, we initially built it as a parent-promoted academy. Okay, gotcha. And whilst it was Labour policy to enable parent-promoted schools to be set up, it was it was an idea that they paid lip service to, but weren't actually hadn't actually given much thought to how it might be done. The, and, and as I say, there, there were there were two examples. There was one in I think they were both in Lambeth uh, of parent promoted schools. Uh, one was an academy. One was a voluntary aided school. And uh, but they had really struggled to right. get open, and uh, they had much better uh, political connections with Downing Street at the time right. uh, than I did. Uh, they had sort of political influence, political clout, which I didn't have. Anyway, so it was it was pretty obvious at this stage that unless there was a change of government, we weren't going to be successful. Um, and uh, so I got this guy, Jonathan Fingerhut, to come and talk to us. And he said, the first thing he said was, it took my group 10 years to get this school open. That's 10 years of your life you'll never get back. And I said to him, I said, uh, you know, Christ, I thought, you know, this, this isn't going well. You know, but Jonathan, had you known at the end of those 10 years that you would have this fantastic school embodying your vision, presumably you wouldn't have done anything any differently. He said, are you kidding? He said, my wife's almost left me. I'm practically bankrupt. My daughter's too old to go to the bloody school. And, and so I was conscious about having, having kind of uh, listened to Jonathan that uh, if we didn't get a move on by the right. time the school opened, it could be too late for my daughter. Right. Um, so I wanted to try and get it done quickly. I suppose, you know, might have had some, you know, vainglorious reasons sure, for wanting to be course. the first two. Yeah, um, uh, and it was kind of exciting to be, you know, a path breaker, to be at the kind of cutting edge of a, of a really interesting new policy. And I guess as a journalist, I'd, uh, I'd you know, I've, I'd written about politics before, had a kind of fleeting interest in public policy. And uh, so it was really interesting to uh, be involved in the development of a new policy at the coalface. So intellectually, that was all kind of incredibly stimulating. Um, but as you say, it definitely made things harder. We were essentially cutting a path through yeah. a kind of jungle of red tape, which didn't exist before us. And... There were eventually processes put in place within the Department for Education to enable groups like ours to set up schools. But at that time, they didn't exist. So we were kind of creating that process together. And were they, and were they cooperative with you? Because, I mean, Gove is sort of the big standard bearer for this and is super enthusiastic and willing to sort of, you know, get things done. And kind of knows what he's up against. But, but, but did the Department of Education, did they have sort of people who made it their business to be, to be helpful or were, they, or were they more sitting back and saying, well, I'll let you come to us? How, how, how is that dynamic? Um, they, were, they were the uh, officials within what was then the DCSF, known colloquially as the Department of Chairs and Soft Furnishings, but I think it's the, <laughs> the Children's Schools and Families, 
under Ed Balls, when he was the Secretary of State until 2010, were unhelpful. Yeah. Um, under Gove? Uh, but when Gove became the Secretary of State and they knew that this was a policy priority, they were helpful. Okay. Um, so, I mean, they were, they were, they were kind of... No, uh, generally, I was impressed by the officials we were dealing with. Officials locally were much less helpful. Right, that's so the local authorities, right? Local authorities, yeah. So local authority officers, particularly in Ealing, where we initially, which is where we are now, which is where we initially wanted to try and set up the school, they were really unhelpful. They basically tried to stop it happening, yeah? Yeah, they were very obstructive. And they said, there aren't any sites available. There's no need for an additional school in this area. We've got all the places we need. Interestingly, subsequently, Ealing Council has completely changed its policy with regard to free schools and there are now numerous free schools in Ealing and all the local officials are very helpful I think to multi-academy trusts that want to open free schools in Ealing but then they hadn't come around to the policy at all even though it was a conservative controlled local authority Uh, uh, so we shifted our focus to Hammersmith and Fulham which uh, which they were more helpful and you've now you've opened I know you've opened I'm sure I read somewhere you've opened four free schools but I'm really only aware of the main West London free school and the primary school. Yeah, there, there, are, there, are, there are. So we opened the West London free school, which is a secondary, in 2011. Um, and uh, th- then the same group, essentially the same 12 people, um, opened the West London free school primary in 2013. Hmm. And then we opened a second primary, the Earl's Court free school primary, in, I think, 2014 and then a third primary the primary. Kensington Primary Academy in 2016 so why primaries and not secondaries uh, it's slightly well we wanted to create a feeder school for the secondary school initially um, and but I suppose we we part of the kind of underlying motivation was to create a school which offered children of all abilities and from all parts of the local community a classical liberal education. Generally speaking, that kind of education, fairly traditional, subject-based, knowledge-rich education, is the kind of education that's offered at top independent schools like Westminster, Winchester, Eton, but isn't widely available in the state sector, although it's more likely to be found in faith schools, which tend to be more old-fashioned and traditional than it is at secular schools. So we wanted to provide that kind of education, but in a mixed ability, inclusive setting, which was available to everyone in the local community with an interest in it, not just those who could afford to go private or who could get into faith schools. And we didn't just want to provide that type of education for children aged 11 and older we wanted to provide it to children aged four and upwards right. not least because it was uh, it would make it made much more sense to try and educate children within that tradition yeah. from the age of four right. rather than rather, starting rather at the age of 11 when they might have been bath. educated in a completely yeah, different way to, yeah straight into a cold bath age whatever um, it is. and there was also a, a, a sort of more practical reason which is that um it's actually very difficult to make just one school sustainable. Free schools are funded directly by the Department for Education. Legally, oh, they're indistinguishable from academies. You don't get much support from the local authority. So you're you're getting really some on kind of economies of scale going on. And there on. are some economies of scale. If you, if, you, if, you, if you get a bit larger, you can afford to employ 
some executives who just work for the trust and right. can do the kinds of things that local authority officers do for local authority schools. Uh, so it just becomes a little bit more practical and sustainable uh, if your school is part of a multi-academy trust than if it's a standalone school. Right. And one of the things I'm one of the things I was struck up because I was looking. I'm sort of a big fan of the Michaela School and Burble thing. Yep. And I was very struck by something she said because she also faced huge. You know, people made it as difficult for her to start the school as they could, and so she spent either a year or two years trying to sort her way through these things before she, she before she could get going. And one of the things she said, I don't know if it's the kind of just thing you do say or whether it's whether it's genuine but she says oh well that was a big advantage to us because we had all that time that we could then spend planning and plotting and working out exactly what we wanted to do and do you think that your early years at West London Free School were sort of compromised by the fact that you had to deal with all these obstructions and get going quickly and maybe not had as much time to plan sort of the educations yes uh, well I think think there were I think there were pluses and minuses. One of the pluses of being among the first free schools to open is that the school attracted quite a lot of publicity. And I was given a platform in which to set out the school's stall. And uh, as a result, the school never had any any difficulty attracting pupils or staff. It's always been oversubscribed from the very first year it opened, uh, which isn't always the case with new schools. So that was definitely an advantage. There were certainly disadvantages connected with being the first school, or one of the first schools to open, uh, first free schools. Our, our kind of HR wasn't nearly as good as it, as it subsequently became. Um, we, How do you uh, mean HR? I don't quite understand. I mean... Well, we, 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 we now have very, a very robust recruitment recruitment policies in place which uh, which weren't as robust as they might have been when we first opened oh. um, when it comes to staff recruitment but, 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 but I don't quite understand you mean I mean robust in what sense and robust in the sense that you're much better at, at picking and choosing or yeah or? we've become better at um, assessing applicants for jobs than we were in 2011 no, I, I'm, I'm you know <laughs> I'm sort of sort of creeping around this, but I just noticed uh, when I went onto the Wikipedia page and looked at it, I thought, oh, how many headmasters in, 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 in how many years? And I just wondered if that was a function of because you'd been in such a rush, maybe getting the square pegs into the square holes um, had been more difficult than it, than it might have been. Yeah, I mean, we... we... I think one of, the, one of the difficulties, not just we have faced but free schools generally have faced is that you initially attract applicants for the head teacher position who are very energetic very innovative very excited about being involved in something new at the kind of forefront of education policy but who um, become less interested Mm. once the school has established itself uh, and once the kind of novelty factor has kind of worn off a bit, um, and for that you need someone who's who's kind of a systems person who's really good at putting workable systems in place. Right. I think I think I think wait, the 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 new schools network was uh, only existed in a sort of embryonic form when we opened the West London Free School, and now 
it has a kind of it's able to offer lots of kind of really good practical advice for people setting up free schools who, uh, who, um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I that should... was set up by rachel wolf and it was uh and it's been it was the organization that i ran until earlier this year and okay. i've been running it for a year and a bit at oh, that okay. stage um and it's a it's a charity that uh, essentially helps uh, groups charities etc set up free schools uh, and it's part funded by the department for education i think i think i mean i i want to talked about this before i mean it's it's quite it's quite it's quite the reason I might sound a bit kind of uh, cautious and kind of mealy-mouthed is because um, I made the mistake of giving a very candid interview to the editor, the then editor of Trade Weekly called Schools Week, oh. in which I said actually establishing the school and making it successful was harder than I'd yeah. initially imagined. Uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that, and that you know, kind of spun in this way. And that, it was spun. You know, it was spun as it was spun as me confessing yeah, that yeah. Um, I had bitten off more than I could chew, and that the whole thing was a disastrous mistake. Yeah, yeah. And it was held up by people who are critics of the policy to say, yeah. of course, amateurs with yeah. no background in education cannot hope to set up successful schools. You know ignoring the fact that actually the West London Free School, in spite of some teething problems, has been, you know, by most metrics, extraordinarily successful. So in our first GCSE year, our results put us in the top 10% of all mixed ability state schools in England. This year, we've got our first six formers going to university. 83% of them got offers from universities, 63% from Russell Group Universities. Um, well, well, stop, and so stop, forth. stop, 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 because because I, I saw that somewhere when I was I was digging around. I thought that seems extraordinary. Sixty three percent. That seems super high to me. But, but is it or is that sort of normal? It's certainly above average. Right, because I thought, you know, Russell Group, I mean these are supposed these are the yep. these are the these are the universities that, you know, everybody seems to think are the ones that that you know are going to make the difference in your future careers. I thought, wow, sixty-three percent of your students—that just sounds to be, to me anyway, to be not just good. It seems to be hitting the ball out of the park. But you know, I, but unless we know what the average is, I guess. Well, I guess it we may don't be know. that it may be that the percentage which end up being admitted sure is lower i would say so um, the offer is dependent but, on what they get in their results yeah, it's conditional upon oh, okay right, right upon them um uh, but but yeah i think i think 63 percent getting offers from russell group is still pretty extraordinary including seven percent from oxford and cambridge um and then, and then you always get this average. debate then you always get people saying ah but that's because you exclude all these people and you haven't got the right number of people from this background or that background and it just becomes almost I mean, yeah. I find it really confusing to yeah. try and people, see people, we, which apple and which pear we're comparing yes. everybody to we, we, we've uh, well 40% of uh, the children at the West London Free School uh, are from disadvantaged backgrounds defined as either eligible for free school meals or who have been eligible for free school meals at some point in the last six years. Right. So that is the, that's the pupil premium criteria. So uh, 40% of the kids at the school are eligible for the pupil premium. Um, so you couldn't claim that the reason such a high percentage have got Russell Group University offers is because it's a, it's a kind of uh, just a middle-class cohort. Right. And then, and then yeah, and I, and I saw the other... Extraordinary thing where I think it was yeah, it was Paul Mason says this shows that Toby Young despises working class children. I think I saw oh, that 
doesn't sound <laughs> consistent <laughs> with Paul Mason. With, I think with, Paul Mason is slightly insane, so I'm not sure. Yeah, um, he seems like to be a super intelligent guy who's gone mad. Well, I mean, I don't want to say that, but yeah, he you know. said when, when I was appointed to the Office for Students, somebody dug up a report in the Independent about an essay I'd written 30 years ago. Um, and the report in the Independent was retaliation for a, a warts and all profile oh, I yeah. ran in Spectator Life of Evgeny Lebedev, the owner of the oh, Evening Standard. Yes. And so, I mean, I, I thought it was a fairly reasonable, even-handed profile, but it was, you know, it, it included some facts that he probably didn't want included. And, you know, a couple of days after the profile appeared, this hatchet job right. on me based on this essay I'd written in 1988 appeared right. in The Independent, which was, which completely distorted the piece I'd written. Um, but nonetheless, uh, that was dug up by various critics of my appointment to the Office for Students and cited as evidence that I was a terrible snob because it included some unflattering descriptions of kind of socially awkward boys at Oxford when I was mm. there. And uh, and Paul Mason cited this essay as evidence that I despised working class children who made good through education and also went on to claim that that was the reason the Tories had appointed me to this body. Yeah. That, that yeah. the Conservatives, he thought, actually had an agenda of wanting to prevent working class children but, go to university. I mean, it's completely bonkers. Do you, um, and, but and, do and, you what, think he really <laughs> believes that? Or do you think yeah, that's he a good thinks question. that's sufficiently credible that it will stick? and that in a good cause, you can lie your head off. I mean, what's the psychology? I think... Um, I don't know. I mean, I think... I think, I think, I think um, it, it, it's the same question, I suppose, um, in relation to, uh, more broadly, Corbyn's anti-Semitism. When, when people on the left dispute that he is an anti-Semite or is associated with anti-Semites or that his association with anti-Semites makes him in some sense anti-Semitic and claim it's just a smear. And in some cases, they go on to say it's a smear being perpetrated by Jews, <laughs> yeah, well, which in itself seems evidence of anti-Semitism. <laughs> right. um, but um, do they really believe that? Are they just saying it for politically expedient reasons? Did Paul Mason really believe it? Was he just uh, trying to take advantage of something for political reasons and smear me because he thought it would be a way of scoring some points? Um, it's hard to know, and, um, and and maybe they don't know themselves. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I think that's a very good point. I don't think we do know ourselves quite. No, you know, we're kind of slightly, slightly a mystery to ourselves. I think in politics, um, you know, people can bring themselves to believe things which appear to kind of help their cause and buttress their argument um, which to people outside that echo chamber seem sort of transparently false yeah um, but, but you to see them it, less transparent uh, yeah but but you see it with things like um, I mean the, the guy who's super famous at the moment is Jordan Peterson right yep and people say he said this he said that and you think I don't know why you say that because I've listened to Jordan Peterson's mm. things and he doesn't say that and he doesn't believe that. So it's not just that you're lying. Yes. You must know that it's obvious that you're lying. So, so yes. I find that, that I mean, I think, dynamic I think, yes. very mysterious. Well, I think, I think in a sense, I suppose you could say 
It's the same question, isn't it, about um, whether people who hunted witches in Salem in the late 17th century really believed that the women they accused of being witches really were witches or whether they were just trying to enforce kind of uh, compliance with various kind of oppressive kind of sexual codes and so forth and maintain their power in a particular hierarchical arrangements. Um, And I think, I mean, one of the things which, which struck me as unfair about the way in which my character was assassinated during um, the furore over my appointment to the Office for Students mm. was that people like Paul Mason and others uh, would, would, would do things like cite an essay I'd written 30 years ago and claim that on the most uncharitable reading this essay made me a snob and that, that, that must capture, in essence, my attitude towards educating working-class children, social mobility and so forth, and totally ignored everything else I'd done, Mm. such as setting up a secondary school um, which, you know, um, educates lots of disadvantaged children in in which they do very well. Why is that? Why why should someone be judged according to just the least charitable interpretation of something they've written 30 years ago and everything else which you would think would be germane to assessing what their attitude to social mobility is since uh, is just kind of just ignored. And is it, is it because they genuinely believe that they can see into my soul and that um, these moments which they're highlighting were moments when, you know, the mask of decency was yeah. whipped aside I and do the think gargoyle I, within yeah. was revealed? Or are they just using whatever they can to kind of score political points and win a political argument and delegitimize someone yeah. whose politics they generally disagree with. Yeah, well, well, maybe it's a bit of both, but I do think they have... People on the left, I think, have a more sort of Manichaean view of the world. There's sort of the, you know, there is the, the, the good guys yes. and there's the bad guys. And, 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 and the bad guys are pretending to be good. But if you look really carefully... You know, you can find, you know, the extra nipple, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that gives it away. So I think that yes. possibly they genuinely believe found the third nipple, found the thing that Toby Young wrote 30 years ago, which, yes, it's a small thing. And I yes. know you wouldn't normally, but we've, we've, that's it. This is, this is, yeah. this is, you know, we've cracked the case. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. I think, I think that's true. I think, I think, I think generally, I mean, this is, this is, this is uh, one of the, One of the arguments that Jonathan Haidt makes in The Righteous Mind, which is that one of the reasons, generally speaking, the left has fared more poorly than the right in electoral competitions um, in the West over the past sort of 25, 50 years is because the left are more Manichaean, as you say. They find it harder to uh, imagine what it's like not to be left-wing, then right-wing people find it to imagine what it's like not to be right-wing and therefore have difficulty appealing to people who aren't already in their camp or more Mm. difficulty than conservatives generally do. And they generally have a kind of narrower kind of moral perspective in which you're either a good or a bad person. 
and I think I think I think there are two two probably two uh, dimensions to this in my case and what happened to me. I think first of all there is this kind of general view on the left that if you are uh, a Tory, mm. um, then you're a bad person. And um, so they don't have to. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't kind of yeah, and look that's at a, the and evidence. And that's and just, a sincerely held view, right? And that's a sincerely held view. So they. So they. So so they. So they. So they've made up their mind about that. Mm. They think anyone who's a Tory must be bad. Uh, and so um, they don't. You don't have to convince anyone on your side that this particular Tory is bad. Um, it's not that they kind of look at everything you've done and assess whether you're a good Tory or a bad Tory. They assume you're a bad person because you're a Tory yeah. and then cite evidence to kind of corroborate that view right. that they've already taken. But I think in my case, it was probably uh, there was this other thing going on, too, which is that um, it coincided with me, too, as well as kind of sure. uh, the rise of identity politics sure. and in virtue of being a cisgendered white male yeah. and a privileged cisgendered white male on top of that, um, uh, then I must be a bad person too. And so it didn't take... And, and so, again, it was uh, just finding... Um, uh, uh, finding the crime. Finding, fi- finding, finding, finding kind of um, tweets and things I'd written to kind of corroborate uh, something they'd already made up their minds about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I read the tweets and... You know, the, <laughs> I mean, they're pretty pretty bad jokes, some of them, and really, you know, what the hell were you thinking? But then I thought... But it's a joke. We can see it's a joke. You know, this is you know a you know a crude joke is not is not the whole of the person, of course. You know, and it's so so for that to be used in that way. There was an interesting piece actually in uh, Quillette um, by Heather MacDonald, um, uh, published today. Oh, really? Um, uh, about the, you know, the it's about a poem that was published in The Nation uh, a few weeks ago. And the poem was written from the point of view of um, a black homeless person. Um, and, I think I've seen this. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the poet was white and not homeless. And, um, and it makes reference to AIDS. It uses the word crippled. Um, and the intention of the poet was clearly... Um, to um, make the point that marginalised people uh, were expected um, to perform uh, the role of a marginalised person in order to elicit the sympathy of right. liberals. Um, so it was, it was, and it, it, but politically, you know, it was definitely, you know, written from a left of centre perspective right. by someone who probably has um, lots of identitarian kind of ideological beliefs mm. um uh, but the poem was leapt on by um a you know by um offense archaeologists this is a great phrase that <laughs> yeah, Freddy yeah, DeBoer, yeah. this uh, yeah, uh, american yeah. blogger came up with uh, tr- trying to find evidence that uh, you know that this this guy and they found, they they claimed to find this poem offensive and they 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 compared his use of um african-american idiomatic english to blackface claimed that it was ableist and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, instead of defending this poet, the editors of The Nation immediately kind of apologised and, you know, abased themselves at the kind of feet of the mob, as did this poor poet uh, who said he thanked, thanked them 
for having kind of educated him about. Yeah. Um, I don't know what. Uh, I, uh, it, was what like, it was like it was it couldn't could, it was like it was like they both emerged from a kind of Chinese cultural re-education sure. camp after being beaten to within an inch of their lives. Yeah. And but, and but, 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 but the point that Heather Macdonald makes is that um, is that this requires a kind of naive reading of language. It's saying authorial intention is right. irrelevant. Yeah, context irrelevant. Um, the words themselves take on a kind of life of their own sure. and are capable of harming people. Um, uh, and so and I think in my case, you know, the fact that the fact that I was, you know, it was a misguided attempt at humour um, uh, uh, or I had various uh, satirical intentions um, well, that's not why uh, was, was, too was much. totally I mean, irrelevant. I mean, they were pretty shit jokes, uh, to put it, uh, to put it. Yeah. Put it bluntly, you know, but you know, that's but, the trouble but, is that it goes out. It goes out in a written record, but but people make really terrible jokes, and um, you know, that's just the way the world is. People do make bad jokes, but that isn't who they are. The joke isn't who they are, uh, and if you think that, um, you know, God help us, really. Yeah, um, it's 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 kind of it's sort of like. Um... It's almost as though you find yourself in a kind of um, uh, purgatory in in which um, you're being judged by people um, who are judging you solely on the basis of your worst possible moments sure. in which yeah. in which, you know, the things you're least proud of or yeah. the things you most regret. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you sort of think, well, anyone would uh, find themselves um, being condemned in this particular court. Yeah, it'd be nice um, if before but, your accuser was allowed to say anything, they had to put out the worst thing they had ever said or did and make this public. Yes. And, of course, we don't know what the worst thing they ever said or did, so they're not going to, they're going to keep it quiet. Yes. But it's yeah. all this, well, he's without sin and all well, that. Well, I guess, I guess one, 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 I mean, I think one, uh, one thing that kind of defenders of kind of trial by Twitter might say is that well yeah but it's not like this was locker room banter and these are things you said to your mates in the pub you said them on twitter that's mm -hmm. a kind of that's 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 putting them out there in public that's yeah. broadcasting these sentiments and if you wanted that and, and there are kind of you know different standards in the public arena to the private arena you must have kind of wanted to convey something more sinister and toxic than just kind of uh, wanting to make a few friends laugh. Word of the year, right? And I think, I think the, I think the, I think the, the my, 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 my defence then is that well, back then, you know, nine, ten years ago, Twitter was a different medium right. to the medium it is today. Uh, it was more like WhatsApp. You know, you were speaking to a small group of your friends or who were following like you it, on yeah, Twitter. Felt like it, yeah. um, uh, it wasn't a kind of broadcast medium. Right. Uh, it wasn't something with the same kind of political resonance that it has today. But also, and I think a lot of people. But, but, have been but there's also out a psychological that. thing. I mean, if you were if you were appearing on TV, you know you're broadcasting to everybody. Yeah. But if you're sitting playing with your iPhone at sort of two in the morning, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. You don't necessarily. You know, you you sort of do know it's going out, but but also it just feels like just some random piece of piece of stuff. You know, I, 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 what 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 is the way to defend yourself because hardly anyone seems to find an effective way to defend yeah. themselves against these storms and about the only person I can think of who's really pulled it off maybe was Max Mosley yes who just came out you know with a baseball bat you know swinging at everybody who came near him and it was 
it was kind of magnificent in a sort of a way. Somebody who'd sort of yes. dressed up as a Nazi, whatever, he, whatever he'd done, and yet still managed to, you know, stand up to them. I thought it was, you know, I don't like the man. I don't like yep. what he's done with the with the press thing. But you know, it's kind of admirable. Yeah, interestingly, that was I, I asked John Ronson, whom I know slightly, and he's written this book. Yes, he's been publicly published. It's a great book. What great, a great book. book. Um, I said to him, you know, when at the height of this kind of Ferrari of all the people whose stories you've chronicled that this has happened to, who would you say has 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 kind of emerged um, the least scathed? Mm. And he said, Max Mosley. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. Um, maybe I got it from his book, but I don't. I don't remember yeah. it being in his book. But maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah, I think it, it, it's. Um, people say, why? Why? Um, cave in to the outrage mob why not just stand your ground why did you resign yeah, from yeah. Lots of students um and um i think it's 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 f- first of all it's kind of it's easier to say that when you're not um you know uh, being when you're not when you're not kind of uh, uh twisting on the end of yeah. a pitchfork um uh, people imagine i think that they'd be much more courageous in those circumstances yeah. than perhaps they would be yes. i think i probably imagined i might be um, yeah. But I think in 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 this particular instance, um, you know, I was told. I mean, first of all, you know, it was it, it was it, it was uh, it had become a kind of big news story, um, uh, and sure, it was uh, feeding in and off we, of Twitter and into the newspapers and back to Twitter. And it was it's amazing kind of, the extent to which the mainstream media kind of followed the cue of, of social media without any kind of scrutiny of what was being said on social media, just repeating everything that was being said on social media. Um, there was a kind of mob of reporters outside my house, which was making life quite difficult for sure. my wife and our four children. My daughter, who was then 14, was refusing to go to school. Um, there was a petition on change.org <laughs> demanding my scalp, which had been signed by 230,000 people. The chairman of the board of the Office of Students, uh, Michael Barber, uh, was he'd initially been very supportive and solid, right. but had begun to wobble after nine days. I mean, understandably. Um, and other members of the board were threatening to resign if I didn't right. resign, this is which was problem. making his life very difficult. He then had to kind of choose whether to, you know, stand by me or stand with them. Um, and uh, and it was overshadowing, <laughs> to put it mildly, the launch of the Office of Students. And sure. you know, it's a it's I, I I believe that it has an important role to play. An organisation needs to exist to defend free speech at Britain's universities. They need their backbone stiffening and there needs to be some kind of regulatory body which can preserve intellectual freedom on England's campuses. Um, uh, and so I didn't want to kind of, uh, you know, draw it out any longer um, and, and continue to cast this kind of unhelpful uh, shadow over the launch of this new organisation. So I, I mean, for a variety I, of reasons, I stepped down. But I always assumed that basically what once the other people start to threaten to resign, then somebody would have said to you, Toby, you know, we're going to have to ask you to step down and, and why don't you do it voluntarily? You know, you know here's here's the revolver and the bottle of whiskey and just go out for a little while. And that is more or less what happened. And at yeah. that point, I could have I could have said... No, why don't you just sack me? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, and and try to kind of you know transform myself into a free speech martyr. Yeah. But that that yeah, felt like a kind of no, slightly vainglorious and selfish thing to do. Um, yeah, but also I think, yeah, at that stage it's probably 
it's probably self-defeating. It just makes more enemies. It makes more enemies, you know, and, and um, you've got enough to be going on with it. And also, stage. I I didn't want to I didn't want to do anything that would uh, could potentially harm uh, any of the four schools that I've been involved right. in setting up. All of which are charities and um, which are dependent on DfE funding in order to kind of continue to exist. Um, so um, you know, uh, uh, it wouldn't have been sensible, I don't think, to have kind of burnt all my bridges at that stage yeah. I mean I did subsequently end up resigning from the board of the uh, multi-academy trust that the schools sit within as well in order to protect the schools um, but sure um, but at least if you go with um, I just don't know what would have been if you could have foreseen it coming what you could have done about it. and I think probably the answer is nothing and that the only way you could have avoided it uh, would have been if somebody else would have come on and sort of picked up the cudgels on your behalf yes and 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 it's and the incentives for anybody in public life to do that are extremely negative right because yeah. what's the upside for them yes not much well you know i mean it's it's like you know you know let them beat up the other kid you know i'm yeah. safe and yeah. and 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 it takes somebody pretty special yeah to, and, and, to take and, that on and to be and, and yeah. even then they might not succeed right Yes. I mean, I think, uh, 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 and in my case, some people did come to my defence. So, in particular, Fraser Nelson wrote a marvellous piece in The Spectator, sure, if any means, so did Rod Little. I saw Fraser Nelson's speech. I, saw, I can't remember Little's speech, but I would expect him to do that. Yes. But, it, but, it, but it would have needed somebody like Theresa May to stand up and say, right, this is ridiculous. And it would, you know, it would need somebody who... Or somebody on the left. Or somebody... Who on the left could have done it for you? I mean, just using a name i just don't know i don't yeah i mean uh, i think well short of corbyn right yeah i think um polly timeby i guess but yeah she, I, uh, I mean i think if 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 i guess you know if dawn <laughs> like butler ever gonna happen right? dawn butler had <laughs> yeah, uh, stood yeah, up in the house uh, of Commons, we can dream and instead of um you know calling for my head which is yeah. what she did um had said actually uh, if you look at this guy's life in the round and judge him by his sure. actions as well as his words. Sure, he's but I'm really talking about people on the right because I think it's a bit. I think, <laughs> I think, it's, I think, it's I think fantasy, you make an interesting point. I mean, I think football. it's. Uh, I think, and I, w- one of the things, um, one of the things I suggested to um, the editor in chief of Quillette when um, she took me on as an associate editor, is that Quillette could perhaps create a kind of uh, um, uh, uh, a, 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 a kind of platform within Quillette in which we did come to the defence of people who found themselves being targeted by outrage mobs in the, in the way that I was and other people are virtually on a daily basis now, um, and that we could um, set up a kind of team of reporters who could kind of do some forensic investigations of people who are accused of these various thought crimes or worse and see what sort of basis there is for them and try and insert some kind of due process into this kind of public shaming right. uh, ritual. Um, and um, if we concluded that actually this person was being unfairly dealt with, then to come to their defence and try and kind of, you know, um, summon an army of the righteous to defend yeah, them on social yeah. media and in that way kind of try and denude these kind of outrage mobs of some of their power. But it's actually very difficult to do. I mean, we have tried to do it, actually. But, but um, I think it is. I think, I think, I think this is happening in some places like... It's rather, I, I don't know what I make of this idea of this intellectual dark web. I think, mm-hmm. what the hell? I'm not sure I quite 
I think that's a great idea, but part of the reason for it, I think, uh, what Eric Weinstein's idea is, that they can come to each other's defence. So that if one of them is being sort of mobbed, you know, they can pile in with their fairly heavyweight, uh, you know, status and try and defend each other. Um, and then there's one, there's this woman, I don't know if you come across, I think Keiko is her name, and she does huge long tweets you know, like 27 things where she just yes. forensically deconstructs sort of the, mm. uh, you know, the allegations that have been made against somebody. And she's absolutely, she's absolutely terrific, I think. Mm. Uh, so just see, maybe seeing just the seeds of that kind yes. of thing starting a little bit, you know, it takes time for the body to react to these well, attacks. One, one, one problem is that um, people on um, the right um, who... Uh, have been horrified by the way in which the left has gone after various right-wing figures and attempted to delegitimize them by purporting to be offended or outraged by various things they've said, are divided about how best to respond. So on the one hand, you have people like me who think that um, no one should um, should lose their livelihood, no one should be fired from a job or be forced to resign in virtue of asinine things they might have said on Twitter 10 years ago uh, and that we can't um, uh, uh, and we need to to kind of challenge this kind of policing of of the kind of public square by these kind of secular religious police uh, in order to preserve free speech. And then there are others who think we just need to use these tactics on people on the left. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, you see that that's happening right now um, with uh, the appointment of um, uh, this twenty is thirty year old Asian American woman yeah, nice to the New York that. Times editorial board, um, and she's made some sort of unpleasant remarks on Twitter about white people yeah. uh, in a typical kind of thoughtless identitarian way. Um, and uh, the New York Times is defending the decision to hire her, even though two previous right of centre hires it's immediately thrown to the walls when. Yes. various tweets they've dug up. Yeah, no, I, I, I saw that, but, but, but let me put it to you, Mr. Young, that uh, this, is a, this is a point of view <laughs> which, having just been through this horrible mobbing yes. and had to resign and so on and so forth, you know, it's very clear why you would have these views, but, but have you, in your past, ever sort of joined in the sort of the pile-in mob and attack people? Yes. Um, well, I've actually... I'm, I'm, I'm currently trying to defend... Uh, I don't know how to pronounce her surname. Sarah Jong, this 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 woman that's been appointed to the New York Times editorial. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just thinking. But, okay. but in the past, yeah, I did, I did, um, I did join in the pile on against Rohan Hari. Johan Hari. Oh, I remember the guy, the sort of the plagiarist guy. The plagiarist, yeah. Um, uh, and um, he 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 published a, a kind of half-hearted, rather inadequate apology, um, and I fisked his apology right. on Telegraph blogs. Um, and uh, I do now regret yeah. joining in that pylon. Um, yeah. and, uh, and he has actually successfully kind of recovered from that setback and sure. wrote a very well-received book about yeah, he seems to me he seems to be a very smart guy and very talented guy. So I don't, I don't really know what the whole story behind all that yeah. was. But he, he, he had been up to no good, I think, to yes. some extent. But you would want him not to... Yeah, I think the real, the real test would be... Uh, I mean, I think uh, th- this came up with respect to James Gunn. James Gunn was the... He directed... Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume oh, yeah. One and Two, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
a an alt-right activist dug up some tweets he'd oh, sent, right. bad jokes, worse actually even than mine, um, 10 years ago, um, uh, uh, about rape and paedophilia, amongst other things. Yeah. And when these were brought to Disney's attention, he was fired yeah. as the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. And uh, one of the reasons that people on the right and centre-right delighted in his defenestration is because he had been yeah. a very he had been a member of various twitch fork mobs up until this point he'd right. outed another director right, right. Um, uh, last year as a kind of sexual predator uh, on fairly threadbare evidence uh, but so, so the real test for me i think would be if it emerged that um owen jones who mm. was certainly one of the kind of leaders of the twitch fork mob against me if it emerged that owen jones had said some things on Twitter which kind of breached various kind of identitarian speech codes and a mob was demanding that um, he be fired from The Guardian. Uh, would I join in that pile on? I hope not. I yeah. hope I would defend him. But that would be that would be a real <laughs> test. <laughs> that, might be, that might be very hard. That might yeah. be very hard. To, so okay, so let's let's just talk about something because uh, and we talked about it a little bit before we before we started recording, which is um, your, you know this blog, um, what's it called again? Slate Star Codex. Slate Star Codex, that's right. A guy called uh, Scott Alexander writes it. And it's sort of, he's a sort of a, he's a psychiatrist, I think, a practicing psychiatrist. Yes. Uh, in America, quite a young guy, I think. And how he finds time to write these huge, huge, long blog pieces. But he's basically coming at it from both from the medical side of things and from the sort of the rationalist side of things. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this piece, the Kolmogorov complicity, which I think is actually a pun because of the math, and he loves puns. And I think, the, I think there's something called the Kolmogorov complexity, which right. is, I think this. Anyway, this guy Kolmogorov, he lives in the time of Stalin, and that's the time when Stalin is saying, you know, we we welcome all criticism. Please tell you tell us tell us what you think. You know, is there anything we could be doing better? And you know, the correct response to that is to say, well, maybe more Stalinism. You know, just a little bit more Stalinism, that would be great. But but other than that, that's fine. But some people think they really do want to hear. And so they write and say, well, you know, the trains were a bit late. And, uh, anyway, so pretty soon they're they're in the Lubyanka or else they're in the Gulag or whatever. So, so Kolmogorov, he's the scientist there. And so some mad scientific theories they have about evolution or whatever there. And he just supports these 100%. Yes, yes, that's correct science. And so the Soviets love him and he can get on with doing serious science. So he has to mouth the platitudes, but 90% of his work is serious science. And so maybe he can protect people that need, mm-hmm. need a bit of protection. And that's his way of dealing with, with Stalin. And, and, and maybe that's the way when you're in the Middle Ages... Uh, that's the way you deal with the Catholic Church. They, you know, they're really happy to fund a lot of scientific research. The Catholic mm-hmm. Church. There's just a few things we, you know, you just have to keep away from. And so, I guess, I guess so, so the problem with that, of course, is that some people can't be Kolmogorov. Some people always come out and speak the truth, and then they're destroyed. And and then when I thought about the article. I thought about the article a bit because I thought it was really, really interesting. You know, what's the what's the way to do it when you've got people who, if you say the wrong thing, even if the wrong thing is true, mm-hmm. especially if it's true, maybe because then it's really frightening. Mm-hmm. They will come after you and they'll and they'll destroy you. And and I, so I thought that was a very interesting dilemma that he talked about. And then I realised that that actually what he was doing, he was finding a third way with that blog, 
to talk about the Damore case. Yes. Because the Damore case had become something we don't talk about the things Damore mm-hmm. talks about. Because if we do, you know, people will come after us. They won't listen to us. They won't care about our background. They will just destroy us because Damore said the things mm-hmm. that must not be said. Mm-hmm. But in this blog piece, by talking about Kolmogorov, he's saying, so you want you want us to live in a sort of a Stalinist state where Damore just keeps his mouth shut about stuff he knows to be true and just mouths the platitudes and mm-hmm. hope things get better. So, mm-hmm. I, so I thought, well, that was, a, that was a really clever piece. He'd found yes. a way to defend Damore without mentioning Damore and as a result, without being, you know, being set upon by the, by, by the righteous mob. And sort of the final point here is that it seems to me that, that when you talk about genetics and intelligence and all these things, you know, that's like, that's like writing to Uncle Stalin to say, you know, you think the factory organization mm. could be improved quite significantly. Yes. You know, you are just setting yourself up to be, to be sent to the gulag. So why the hell would you do it? Yes. Um, it's interesting that you would read that piece in that way. I don't know if you're familiar with the political philosopher Leo Strauss. Leo Strauss um, uh, is, uh, was a, 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 an influential uh, conservative political philosopher who taught at the University of Chicago, and probably his most famous student was Alan Bloom, who wrote The Closing of the American Mind. Right. And one of Leo Strauss's things was that you should read the various uh, core texts in political philosophy, going back to Plato, esoterically. So you given that they were never trying to express themselves, or for the most part weren't trying to express themselves directly, right. but indirectly. And that they always concealed, or not always, but for the most part concealed their true meaning in order to avoid persecution. Right. Um, and um, which, you know, was when the stakes then were sort of life and death, as they were in Stalin's Russia. Um, and so you had to kind of read between the lines to work out what they were really saying. And it sounds like that's what you've been doing. Uh, with respect to Scott Alexander, um, yeah, I think it, I thought that was a really interesting blog post, um, and it wasn't clear to me exactly what recommendation he was making. But one of the points he made is that um, when people who are truth seekers, mainly scientists, but not exclusively scientists, um, uh, blurt out the truth uh, without realizing that there are good reasons why this particular truth has been suppressed um, and that anyone expressing this point of view, even though it's true, is likely to suffer in various ways um, uh, and may end up losing their career or worse. Uh, One of the reasons that they blunder in with their kind of, in their sort of earnest truth-telling way is because they naively don't realise yeah. what the consequences. Yeah, they of, think Stalin really wants to know. They, they think, think yeah, Stalin they, they, really wants to know. They think Stalin really wants to know, um, and that's partly because he says that um, that people who have this kind of passion for the truth um, uh, are often quite socially unsophisticated yes. and don't have very good radar yes. when it comes to working out where power lies and aren't good at esoterically reading the statements of people like Stalin yes. just take them at face value and as you say uh, think that uh, oh they, they purport they're scientists they purport to be interested in truth they're members of the Royal Society uh, that's an organisation devoted to the expansion of knowledge regardless of the consequences 
here's some knowledge. Oh dear, why is the Royal Society <laughs> kick me yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but do you not think that's an exact analogy to what happened to Damore? In other words, Google said, "Oh, you've come to these seminars. We really want your feedback. We'd like to understand why there's not more women in STEM. Please give us your feedback." And Damore thinks they mean it. Yes. Yeah, I think it it probably it, it is a good analogy, and I don't suppose that. Damore thought that the consequences of writing his memo would be that he'd be fired. No, not at all. Um, I exp- I think he probably wanted to stimulate debate. I think he probably thought that um, that because what he was saying was uh, scientifically difficult to contest. Yeah. And um, even though it is contested and was contested, but because there was certainly quite a lot of support for what he was saying statistically and so forth that his masters would would read the memo and his colleagues would read the memo and think well this guy has a point yeah. you know maybe wanting complete gender parity in stem fields and particularly at google in leadership positions uh, isn't a very sensible hiring policy uh, let's at least have a debate about it instead of what you've said creates a hostile work environment for your colleagues and therefore we're going to fire you. Um, and I, I think he probably was... I mean, but I, I'm not sure if you could accuse him of naivety. I mean, even I was shocked when, when Google actually fired him. Yes. You'd think that Google I was would have made an effort I was to, I was to try and demonstrate that it, was so it tolerated it was, viewpoint It was diversity. so fast. I, it was, I didn't, it I didn't quite... such a un- draconian overreaction, yeah, but I very typical of the way in which... Um, corporations yeah. cave in to outrage mobs. Well, yeah, but, but but I think also the outrage mobs aren't on the outside of the corporations. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of people who are very sympathetic to that form of political thinking inside Google. I don't know if you've seen the the uh, the transcript of the of the court case that Demore is no. taking. I mean, have a read of it. You will be amazed. Yeah. <laughs> you will be amazed at the stuff he quotes from internal mails and. Yeah. And, and and stuff, I think, and it's I think, just like my goodness me, that yeah. uh, I had no idea that this sort of thing would go on in a place like uh, like Google, which makes me kind of scared because I think so. Google runs YouTube, right? Yeah, and YouTube is the only place that you can put your videos. There really is nowhere else. I mean, they have the entire market. If you want to be seen by a big audience, so now they kind of control information. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a monopoly. You can go to Vimeo, but because of the network effect, nobody mm-hmm. does. And people say, well, you know, this is okay. It's free enterprise. They should be free to say, mm-hmm. you know, what goes on their store and what doesn't. I mm-hmm. think, well, yeah, if there were a hundred YouTubes, I'd be pretty fine mm-hmm. with that because then you could go to another. But now we've mm-hmm. kind of created this thing, mm-hmm. which either through through uh, public uh, sort of demands for what they close down or because of internal policies of what they close down or because governments suddenly mm. take a, take note and say, gee, we can control this. Mm-hmm. I think the world we've made with this is kind of a bit scary. Mm. There was, yeah, I mean, I mean, we're running out of time now because I know you've got to disappear off for lunch, but there, just, there was just one other thing I just wanted... Well, just something we almost touched on, but we didn't quite maybe just want to look back to it. Because I remember when you said, well, you want to be this, uh, you wanted your free schools to be sort of a comprehensive grammar school, which I think is a helpful term in that it kind of, it's like your your elevator pitch. It kind of says mm-hmm. a couple of words and lets people know what we're talking about. And maybe it's unhelpful yeah. because grammar schools come with so many, yes. you know, arguments and, and, you know, but still you get the basic idea. One of the things you were very keen on was that you wanted Latin to be taught. And... 
I can kind of understand that because it's a discipline and it's and it's. Uh, but how has that gone? Do you, do you, is that something you still do? Has it been a success? Because I was kind of it was kind of one thing I thought. Gee, I don't know. Maybe teach them French. <laughs> yeah, um, we do teach them French as well. Well, I know, but um, you know, maybe have longer lessons. <laughs> um, well, one reason, in just on that point, one reason um, teaching children Latin in year seven, um, uh, as well as French, and right. not just French, right, is that um, uh, f- French is less inclusive than latin because for the most part all children are coming to latin afresh right whereas some people will know some french in year seven and others won't right um and that makes it a leveler in a way that teaching them french in year seven isn't right um and the rationale was partly that um it did seem to be you know it's a core component of a classical liberal education we wanted to introduce the children to some elements of classical civilization and the classical world. Um, and we wanted them to be able to see that beneath our civilization, there is this older civilization. And right. you're not going to be able to read that. You're not going to be able to see that sure. without knowing a bit about the classical world. Um, and of course, there are there are various claims that um, people make for Latin too, that it trains you how to think logically and rationally and so forth. And that kind of is generally helpful when it comes to I mean I'm sure that's true I'm just not sure it's not true sure in year seven <laughs> um, uh, uh, but um, it's gone pretty well I'd say and it yeah. is something we still do yeah and is um, it just one year's Latin you do or, or, is it, or does it go Latin is go, mandatory um, for the first three years of the school so in key stage three but no it, I think it's gone pretty well and um, quite a few of the kids end up doing Latin GCSE and go on to do uh, Latin at A level so um one of the um, sixth form students who's got an offer from Oxford right. uh, this year has got an offer to do classics. Right. Um, and and I don't think would have become interested in classics had she not had to do Latin for the first three years at the school. No, I'm pretty sure that. I'm pretty, pretty, <laughs> but now sure she's right. totally passionate about it. And I think she'll go on to, I do think she'll go on to get a place. And then the other free school that I've had something to do with, um, because I went to, I, I just got interested, I think through my Twitter feed, kept coming across Burble Singh. Yep. And our West London free school. And Michaela. I know that, yeah, the Michaela free school. And I know they have these, you, you can come along and visit, but I, I, I didn't do that. I just went to, along to one of their events where they were they mainly, right. I think, aimed at teachers. And I had, you know, there were speeches from all the Michaela right. staff and some other people. And I was chatting to people there. And it was extremely interesting. And, um, but her approach seems to be to narrow everything down, so do everything well. Mm-hmm. So only do a few things, but do what you do really, really well. Yes. Seems to be her approach. And she also has some other ideas which are, you know, you know, you know the classrooms are extremely, you know, organized. Everybody, mm-hmm. know, you know, everybody has to follow the teacher. You, walk, you know, there's a set route from class mm-hmm. to class. You've got to be there in a certain amount of time. I guess it's just, it's just extremely organized and extremely, I don't want to say disciplined because it sounds like it's, it's militaristic, which I don't yep. think it actually is, but... But, you know, the expectations are there and the kids mm-hmm. just get used to it and they mm-hmm. do it. So what's different between your school and what you understand the Michaela School to be doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'd say that the, uh, the, schools come, the schools were inspired by two different traditions. So the inspiration for Michaela uh, 
I think, is um, uh, the knowledge is power schools right. in America. And, is that uh, the Ed Hirsch thing? No, that's slightly different. And um, uh, and they, they've, they, they, they're what's known as um, uh, uh, no excuses, urban charter schools. Right. And they have been the most successful of the charter schools. So minorities in urban areas uh, do much better at no excuses charter schools than they do at any other type of school. And, and I think Catherine was in part um, uh, trying to emulate the success of the KIPP school programme right. uh, in the United Kingdom. And she's not the only one, or in England, she's not the only one trying to do that. There have been various attempts to replicate that model. Oh. Uh, so there's a school in Bradford called Trinity Dixon's Academy. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and there are others too, King's Warrington Academy, uh, to a certain extent, um, uh, uh, Reach Academy Felton in West London. And they've all been extraordinarily successful to date. I mean, we don't know yet what yeah. Michaela's GCSE results are going to be. I think it's GCSE results. It's first set of GCSE results going to be this year. By um, this year, you mean they'll come out come out in August. summer? Or no, this, come out. Oh, they'll come out I think this they're August. coming out in August, oh, okay, yeah, I think, right, right. yeah. Um, I'd have to check. Um, but um, generally, that's, that's been a... And is that a good test, the GCSEs, or is it more the A-levels? That's the real test. What's, where, where's the Usually real... the test, the test, well, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, there are various metrics. The only metric we have to go on so far uh, in the case of these free schools that have tried to emulate KIPP schools are GCSE results because they right. they they're not old enough to have any A-level results sure. or university data. Um, uh, but that'll probably be equally successful. The, 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 whereas the West London Free School was more an attempt to um, provide children with a classical liberal education in a kind of mixed ability, inclusive setting, which was slightly different. Uh, and we were kind of probably more inspired by Edie Hirsch than right. uh, Catherine was originally. But one of the characteristics, curiously, of the English version of urban no excuses, urban charter schools, is that they have incorporated elements of E.D. Hirsch's kind of core knowledge approach right. uh, alongside this kind of rather regimented um, approach to behaviour and school organisation. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've visited Michaela two or three times and uh, have always been very impressed. And it, it's almost all, sometimes it's, I feel like I'm, it's a kind of more purist version Right. Of what we what we're trying to do at the West London Free School, and would you um, and would you would you aspire? I mean, I guess it's not your choice because I, I guess you know you're not the headmaster of West London Free School, you know. So it's not. No. Do you think that is that that model is more powerful, or do you think it's horses for courses, or what's the well what's one the of the one of the um, uh, one of the differences is that art and music and sport, whilst they all happen. Mm-hmm. At Michaela, they don't happen on the same scale and don't have the same resources devoted right. to them as we devote to them at the West London Free School, um, and uh, that enables Michaela to focus with kind of laser-like intensity yeah. on, on a core of traditional academic subjects. Um, I mean, we do that too, but not perhaps with the same laser-like intensity because music and sport and art are also a big part of our curriculum and we devote quite a lot of resources to those um, uh, particularly competitive sport um, uh, but um, 
I've, whenever I've visited, I've been incredibly impressed. Impressed by um, uh, how the children seem to be really thriving in yeah. that environment. I mean, the main kind of uh, argument against no excuses charter schools mm. like Michaela is that the uh, the behaviour policies um, uh, are oppressive and yeah. draconian and militaristic yeah. and it's like being North Korea for the yeah, children yeah. and people often link this to kind of um, racial oppression as well because right. in America for the most part the children that go to these schools are from minority backgrounds uh, and they see this kind of regimented, regimented almost prison-like environment so outside sure. of saying this is this is just you're just oppressing people of colour yep. and you know, most of the staff are white yeah. um, but um Actually, when you visit Michaela, and I'm sure the same is true when you visit uh, Kip schools in Harlem, um, what really strikes you is how happy yeah. the children are, how they really thrive. They seem to really revel in this kind of rather regimented, yeah. very well-organized environment in which they know what's expected of them at every step. Yeah. And they like the fact that there's no disruption of yeah. any kind in the classes. And well, that the well, teachers have such ambiguity high expectations is, of them. Ambiguity is very tiring. And, 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 yeah. and, and, and actually, you know, and some kids are very good at handling it and yeah. some kids not so good and some exploited and then, you know, that yeah. cascades down and then you've got all the... Yeah, yeah. So but I, 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 I'm not surprised I, that it's I've quite been, a happy place. It yeah. makes sense to me. And, I've been, and, and what, what's, I think also liberals, particularly liberals who are defenders of progressive education kind of throw up their arms with horror yeah. uh, 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 when, when, they, when they see a school like this. And I'm sure we'll be kind of bitterly disappointed if it gets fantastic results, which I've no doubt it will. Um, but I think ordinary people on seeing yeah. that school would think, oh, my God, why can't I send my child to a school like this? Sure. And I said to Catherine, you know, you have to allow, you know, the BBC or Channel 4 to make a documentary about this school We've, we're so used to mm. documentaries about kind of slightly chaotic uh comprehensives run by these rather laid-back but well-meaning kind of avuncular head teachers um and it's all about kind of coping uh, on the front line yeah. and dealing with cuts and you know it's like watching a kind of yeah, group of uh, you know emergency kind of workers trying to deliver a kind of much needed social service in a war zone or something yeah, yeah. and it's and, and that's the kind of portrait i think most people are left with of what comprehensive education is like and it can't really be any other way if you allowed a documentary to be made if she allowed a documentary to be made about michaela and people saw exactly what 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 took place at this school i think combined with the fantastic results i'm confident it will get i think lots and lots of people not everyone but lots of parents lots of ordinary parents would think i want a school like this in my neighborhood i want to send my child to a school like right. this I, and, and it would you know, there would be a huge a huge way of garnering political support for the free schools policy that, but that, Catherine is understandably yeah, reluctant I, to do it yeah i think i think she's decided to come to get the same result but she's going a different way right she's attacking it through having the teachers come so yeah. she's trying to sort of spread the news by having teachers come and learn and so now they do it in their schools and it kind of sneaks out mm. if you like from the bottom rather than be something that's pulled up pulled up from mm. the top by by the parents you know i don't know yeah and know, I think, maybe I think maybe that's... maybe eventually doing some sort of a documentary but i think it's just you can get stitched up something rotten well something that's her like, worry yeah like, yeah and i think i think it's been it has been extraordinarily um 
uh, effective, I think, at kind of uh, spreading its gospel. Yeah, yeah, um, and, that's, and that's been a big thing. It's like, you know, she's completely, yeah. unless you're an avowed enemy of free schools, mm. you can come and observe mm. and, and, and mm. take a look. And I think people are extremely interested. So she's yeah. she's managed to walk that tightrope yes. really quite amazingly. Yeah. Yep. Um, Toby, we really are running out of time now. Yep. Um, yeah, shall we just bring it to an end there? Okay. Okay, well, yep. thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it.